out of the 25 guys that were there, we had five guys that weren't killed or wounded. I always felt if they'd have known how bad they had us, they would have just continued and wiped us out. Jim Davidson came close to dying in Vietnam several times, but he made it home with the medal that no one wants, the Purple Heart. Jim, in fact, has three Purple Hearts. 54 years after his return from combat, Jim wonders every day, why did I survive when many of my friends did not? That's a question that haunts many combat vet survivors, fully knowing that there is no answer. Jim's time in Vietnam is also defined by a measure of anger. After a booby trap explosion riddled his body with shrapnel, which was the third of his serious battle wounds, Jim thought, as protocol often dictated, that he'd be pulled from the front. That didn't happen. Jim was ordered back to combat. And that led to some serious soul-searching. I sat down with Jim recently to talk about the young soldier he was and the reflective veteran he is today. Maybe we should talk, first of all, about model railroading and softball. Okay. Your model railroading is just spectacular. 2,000 cars you have in your setup here? Yes. And you got into that when? Well, when I was five years old, my parents bought me an American Flyer train set. When I was 13, I switched over to HO. I never had a set. I started with two pieces of track and two freight cars and just kept adding and adding and and adding. You got a set now because I just looked at it in your basement. You've got 2,000 railroad cars. That's quite a setup. Oh, yes. It's my passion in life. Okay. Is it your therapy in life, too? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My wife knows where to find me. I'm downstairs (laughs) working on the railroad. The other connection you have is... uh, Softball, fast pitch. You yes. grew up in... I grew up on the southwest part of Aurora, right next to the Stevens-Adamson uh, manufacturing plant, and they were the sponsors of Sealmaster Bearing softball team. Which was a famous club. They were, right. They won their first national championship in 1959, and then again in 61, 65, and 67. And they won the first two world championships in, I think, 68 and 66. So you're a kid, and you've got, you're real close to the park, and you're watching all these famous right. softball players. And I worked at the park for five summers. So, I, yes, I grew up with softball in my backyard, knew a lot of the major uh, softball players. A lot yeah. of them were our neighbors. So. Yeah. Got to know him. So you went to Aurora West High School and you graduated 65. 65, yes. Did you, at that point in time in your life, have any vision of what your future would be? Not really. I was not planning on going to college. I applied for some jobs, but because I was 17, most places you had to be 18. So my mother suggested, why don't you go to Sears? So I went there. was there for two years until I was drafted. So that's a time when we know that a lot of young men are being drafted. Did you think you were going to get drafted? I was hoping I wouldn't, but it was a pretty good chance that I would. One Saturday I came home for lunch. I normally didn't, but that particular Saturday I came home for lunch 
and my mother said, uh, something came in the mail for you. You better look look at And it was my draft notice. What did you think? Well, I wasn't too happy, but I wasn't going to fight it. I just... What did your parents think? Well, they were very, very uh, worried because the Vietnam War was in full swing. And I suppose the they presumed or feared that you would be going to Vietnam. Yes. Which is what happened. Right. You go off to basic, you're at Leonard Wood, then you go to Fort Polk. And yep. you do you know at that point that you're an infantryman and you're bound for Vietnam? Oh, yes. Yeah. You were right. the 101st Airborne. Right. When I arrived in Vietnam on March 6th of 68, I was sitting in a replacement unit waiting for orders for where I was going to go. And they would read off a whole bunch of names for the various divisions. And finally, my name came up for the 101st Airborne Division. I raised my hand, said, I'm not airborne qualified. They said, well, that's where you're going. It turned out the 101st had gone over as a complete division in December of 67 with everybody airborne qualified. But unfortunately, they were taking casualties so fast they couldn't put them through jump school fast enough as replacements and also they were not doing any jumps anyhow. So I was at the time one of the very first non-airborne replacements that went to the 101st. So I took a lot of flack from the other people because I was a leg, you know, non-airborne. But it didn't take very long for it to swing the other way. And when you arrived there, Tet has just kind of started to wind down. Yes. Right. And the Screaming Eagles, 101st, have lost a lot of people. Yes. Tell me your level of concern or fear. Well, not knowing what to really expect, because no matter how much training you go through, you're not going to know what it's really like till you get out there. Everybody that went to the 101st went to what they called P training. It didn't make any difference whether you're infantry, a cook, a truck driver. You went to more in-country training and then I was sent up to landing zone Sally and it was north of the city of Way so we were up in the very top end of the country. What's your job at landing zone Sally? When I first got there you're assigned to a company I went to Charlie Company and my first day I was flown out there late in the afternoon I was put in the second squad of second platoon Met the guys that were in the squad with me. Sergeant Halliburton was our squad leader, who was a super good guy. And then unfortunately, that very first night, it was our squad's turn to go out on what they called night ambush. As it was turning dark, the rest of the company would move out, and then whatever squad or squads were doing night ambush, you'd move out by yourself. So our very first night I was out there, I'm out there with nine or ten other guys away from the rest of the company. Sergeant Halliburton asked me if I knew how to run the radio. I said yes. I carried the radio that night and did the reporting. My position I was assigned to was on the machine gun team. I was the third man. There was the gunner, the assistant gunner, and the ammo bearer. I carried, oh, I think it was around four four or five hundred rounds for the machine gun. I had my M16 rifle, which I carried uh, 30 20-round magazines, so I was carrying 600 rounds for myself, plus hand grenades, uh, trip flares, Claymore mine, 
put that all together and tell me how much does that weigh? I was carrying over 100 pounds of equipment, which in order to put my backpack on, I couldn't just lift it up and put it on. I had to have it on the ground. I would lay down on it, strap it on, and then stand up because I had three canteens of water, uh, sea rations, uh, personal items. It was a lot of stuff. You're, you're a donkey. <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. A night ambush. What was the intent of that? The intent was by spreading our company out into more units. There was more possibility of making contact with the enemy at nighttime. Right. So usually every third night, our squad would have to go out. And you made friends with guys in your squad, didn't you? Yes. Uh, Doug Thompson was one of your friends? Right. You weren't supposed to make friends, but it, it happened anyhow. You weren't supposed to because of the fear that you would they would be killed yes, or right. you would lose a friend. Yes. And so you're dissuaded from... Right. But I became friends with Sergeant Halliburton and Doug and you know, a couple of the other guys that were in the squad with me. On April 9th, uh, this is like a month after you're in country. What happened on that night? April 9th, we had lost so many people that they left most of our, I guess there was maybe two squads for a night ambush. The rest of the company moved out, and then we were supposed to move out after dark and set up. By that time, I had moved up to assistant gunner, and Doug Thompson had joined us as the third man ammo bearer. Barry was the gunner, and he had received a funny birthday card in the mail that day, and he wanted to show it. So instead of lugging the the machine gun, he took my M16 rifle and left the machine gun with me. And he was only gone a few minutes when uh, we were attacked. They opened up on us. Doug was killed instantly. He was shot in the heart right next to me. Pop Scales was our fire team leader. He was shot in the side. I immediately rolled over and picked up the machine gun to return fire, and it fired one round. I recocked it one round. I did that five times and finally figured it wasn't going to fire automatically, so I picked up Doug's 16 and started returning fire because I was the only one on the position that wasn't killed or wounded. It was just a hit and run. It was probably only a couple minutes that all this happened in, and they were gone. It turned out that uh, Barry had cleaned the machine gun that afternoon, and when he reassembled it, he put the piston in the gas cylinder backwards so it wouldn't fire automatic. But he had never gone through infantry training. His MOS was tracked vehicle mechanic, so he was never really taught how to do it. Now, so many years later, you look at those things that were overlooked in a, in a critical mistake made by somebody in, innocently, but still a critical mistake. Yes. If, they, if it would have been a, sta- a sustained firefight, we were missing our main... You didn't uh, have your main weapon? Our main weapon, right. Fortunately, it was over in a couple minutes. Years later, when I saw the movie Forrest Gump, and Forrest was carrying Bubba Gump out of there. I mean, Bubba... Yeah, I forget his last name, but that was his best friend. Right. And he was killed alongside Forrest, and he carried him out of there, and it affected me a lot because it reminded me I carried Doug out of there. You see your friend, Doug, 
and you have to carry him out of there. You don't have to, but you did. Yes. And that must have been a horrible feeling. Yes. You'd been together long enough, despite the discouragement about making friends, you made a friend, yes. and then in an instant, he's gone. Yes. But you just carry on. There's not much else. You can't... Uh... You lost a lot of people that night, didn't you? Uh, we only lost the one. There was various people wounded, but then two nights later was uh, my worst night. What was left of our platoon, 25 of us were out. It was monsoon season, and we set up in an elliptical-shaped grave, all 25 of us. It was a fairly big grave, and we couldn't see our hand in front of our face. And it was probably about 1 o'clock in the morning that uh, they hit us, overran us. They disabled our trip flares, disabled our claymore mines, and literally came right in on top of us. They initially started throwing satchel charges. Two of them went off right next to me, blew the seat of my pants out. We started just uh, fighting back. I had been returning fire with my M16. One of the other guys, Byron Jones, when uh, things started, he had jumped over the wall and was immediately killed on the other side. But somehow I found his M79 grenade launcher and as fast as I could reloaded, I was just firing rounds out randomly out in front of us. Could you, could you even see the enemy? No, we couldn't see anything, but they knew right where everything of ours was, that they could disable all this stuff. And Were they lying in wait for you, do you think? Hard to tell. Again, fortunately, it didn't last that long. Out of the 25 guys that were there, we had five guys that weren't killed or wounded. We had three killed. Michael, Michael Miller, Jones Tomlinson, and Byron Jones were killed. And there were 17 of us, including myself, that were wounded. I always felt if they'd have known how bad they had us, they would have just continued and wiped us out. We radioed for help, and nobody could uh, come and help us. We had to wait until dawn. When an element of our company, well, our, when we radioed, our company was also being, the main part of it was being attacked at the same time. So we had to wait till dawn so people could finally get out there and find us. I remember our first sergeant was gathering the wounded to have medevacs come out. I was standing there and he asked me if I was wounded. I said, yeah. He says, why don't you sit down? I said, I can't. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> and, right. Uh, so eventually medevacs picked us up and took us uh, to the 22nd Surgical Hospital at Fubai. Did you think that night that you would not come out of this alive? Yes. It was my worst experience. And I had only been there just over a month. It was just a, a horrible thing. Once I was in the hospital the next day, a doctor came around checking me out, and I told him I couldn't hear him very well, so he checked and I had a perforated eardrum from the explosion, which kept me in the hospital for about a month and a half.
Do you replay that night at all in your mind? Do you have occasion to do that? Yes. That you're just... Remembering the people. Remember, mostly remembering the people, or yeah. do you remember the firefight? Well, I remember some of the firefight, you know, what was, what was happening, how okay. intense it was for a while. Right. But it probably lasted a few minutes, or did yes. it go longer yeah, than just that? just a couple minutes. Okay, and it's over with. Right. And the enemy leaves, Right. and you say if they had stayed and knew that the position they had you in, they could have come in and wiped you out. I believe so. I guess that's something to be thankful for. Yes. Well, you get out of the hospital, and then 10 days later, you're in another firefight? Yes. Well, we were always fighting quite often because this was 68, our worst year over there. When I went back out, I went back to my position as assistant gunner, and we were working our way through a village when we got into a firefight. Somehow we had found a trench. We were down in this trench in a firefight with the enemy. I saw a flash in the tree line opposite from us, and a guy had, enemy had fired an RPG, rocket-propelled grenade, and placed it perfectly right against the back wall of the trench we were in. One, the guy, as we were moving around in there, he happened to, not on purpose, but just, just happened, he stepped primarily between the blast and myself. He was hurt very bad. And the other two guys, the gunner and an M79 guy, were all wounded from this explosion. A medevac came in, and I helped get the three of them medevaced out of there. And after it was gone, one of the other guys in my squad, Whitey, he told me I was bleeding from the neck. I had taken a piece of shrapnel from the RPG in my neck, and and you didn't know that? I, with the, you know, everything going on, I didn't realize I had been hit. So I went and reported to my squad leader. He asked if I could stay, because this happened in the evening. He asked if I could stay during the night because we were so short-handed on people. So I... Wait a minute. You're wounded, and he's asking you if you can stay? Yes, because your wound, in his estimation, was not It wasn't severe, severe enough to take me out. To take you out. Okay. Yes. Right. So I agreed to stay the rest of the night, and as the night wore on, it started to hurt quite a bit. And then in the morning, I was picked up, taken back to Sally, where a medic looked at me and was probing in there trying to find a piece and to this day it's still in my neck so i was only out of out of action for a couple days and got sent back out and uh when that's I two times yes okay when i reported back out i told them i wanted off the machine gun team because it's the prime target for the enemy because it's our heaviest armament they they did they took me off of it and made me demolition man for my platoon. My main thing was blowing up unexploded ordnance so the enemy couldn't use it, or blowing up uh, bunkers, that type of thing. One of my biggest memories is one day we came across, I believe it was a 500-pound bomb that we had dropped that had not detonated. So that's one of the things I was supposed to do, use you know, blow this stuff so the enemy couldn't use it. The rest of the company moved on and left me behind with 
one other guy. And so I used a lot of my C4 to put a big charge on this thing so it would blow. And there was a water buffalo tethered about 50, 60 feet away. So I put a very long lead on it, and we went and took cover. The thing blew, blew the 500-pound bomb, and we expected to find hamburger all over the place. But uh, somehow, that water buffalo was still standing there. <laughs> Probably couldn't hear her anymore, but... Uh... So just, you know, on and on doing things like that. So I was always a backup radioman. Different times I would take over. On, I believe it was July 20th, our regular platoon radioman had to go in for some medical thing. They asked him who should take his place, and he said that I knew all the procedures, so I gave up my demolition and got to be a radioman for our platoon leader. Just tag along, be wherever he is. We had swept through a village that day didn't find anything. That night we had our night set up outside that village and it was also the first time we had tanks working with us. The next morning we start to go back through that same village the opposite direction and we had a scout dog, U.S. Army scout dog, German Shepherd and its handler working with us and after we were in the village for a while the tank that was running right along the side of the village, contacted us and thought he saw a booby trap. So I started walking over where the dog and the handler was. Previous to that, the dog handler a few times had me radio in to have the dog picked up and taken in because it was July 21st, it was 100 and whatever degrees and humid and the dog's tongue was basically dragging on the ground. The handler said the dog was totally ineffective. But the Army, in their wisdom, said, nope, keep it out there. Well, after walking a ways, the dog walked through the tripwire on a booby-trapped hand grenade, and with the five-second delay on it, the dog got past it, the dog handler, myself, and it went off about six feet to my left rear. So of the three times I was wounded, this was by far the most serious. It got me top to bottom. Fortunately, the radio protected my upper back. If I still would have been demolition man, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be here today, no. You have like a dozen wounds from this, don't you? Just about 11. And uh, I still have a lot of the shrapnel in me. Did you lose a lot of blood? Uh, I'm sure, yeah. Were you unconscious? Uh, I kind of was not totally unconscious, but not totally with it. And the main part of our company was a ways behind me. So when they heard the explosion, they were radioing me to see what happened. Your radio probably wouldn't work at Oh, anymore. it worked. And I, it? I, I could hear them calling me. I was trying to grapple and find the handset, but other guys were over there right away and took care of that. Sam, the senior aid man, he had to work his way up. So he got up there and worked on me some, and in the meantime, a regular Huey, not a medevac, but just a regular slick, had landed in the rice paddy. And I give this medic a lot of credit. He was much smaller than me, but he 
picked me up fireman style, threw me over his shoulder, and started running out to the helicopter. He fell down twice each time, got back up, picked me up, never asked for help, took me out, dumped me into the helicopter. This was a regular helicopter. It flew us back to LZ Sally to the first aid section where they cut off the rest of my clothes and started an IV. And then a regular medic flew me down to the hospital. That was about an hour and a half from the time I was hit till I was in surgery. So are you cognizant at this point of what's happened to you? Yes. And you know this is the third time, the third time you've been hit. And you got more holes in you this time. Yes. The third time. And so what is your thinking about what this means? I'm thinking the third time is the charm. I want to get out of here. But uh, What are you thinking? Uh, just thankful to be alive and wondering how bad I am. You know. When I got down to the 95th hospital at Da Nang, a medic comes around to check everything. And I've never seen a medic or a medical personnel as totally upset and put it bluntly, pissed off as this guy was. They had never changed my dressings at the previous hospital. All my wounds were open. They hadn't closed anything. So the gauze was totally embedded in my flesh. And he went through a lot of bottles of hydrogen peroxide trying to loosen up. But he he kept telling me, I'm sorry, I got it. And it was just excruciating. So he's pulling the mesh out yes. of your wound, yes, which was enormously painful. You don't have any anesthetic? No. In 75, I was in Heinz. They were going to take some of the shrapnel out of my back. They showed me it looked like it took a white sheet of paper and a pepper shaker and you know, all these little pieces. The next day, they called me in with a team of doctors, and they told me it would take more cutting to take these little pieces out than what it was worth so it's all still in there not worth the risk right yeah so i've had back problems ever since because you can just about stick your hand into the hole that's in my back did you have correspondence with your folks were they aware that you had been wounded yes they received a telegram each time but it didn't give them very much information they never do no. And so did you get mail from your folks? Yes, after but you as wounded? I was moving from hospital to hospital, it took weeks to catch up with me each place I went. With the big chunk that was taken out of my forearm, I couldn't uh, fully move my hand. I could grip, but I couldn't open, and I could move it this way, but I couldn't move it up. So I went through weeks of therapy They'd have me sit with my arm on a table and give me a weight and tell me lift it. And I'm, okay, come on, move up. <laughs> and eventually, maybe just a little bit, you know, until I got the use of my hand back. And are you thinking at this point as you're convalescing, you're getting your strength back and you're doing your rehab work, that you got a ticket to leave the, theater, the, the field of battle? That's what I thought. And in the meantime, my parents were contacting our congressperson at the time, Charlotte Reed, trying to work through her to get me out, which didn't go anywhere. And uh, so eventually I was discharged from the hospital and being sent back to my infantry company again, which I was not very happy about. How, How did you express your unhappiness? 
I wasn't showing up for roll call for a couple days, just avoiding it because I didn't want to get sent back, but he couldn't avoid it forever. So after a couple days of, you know, I was finally sent back. I would go to our the 101st main area down south, and then they would send me back up north. And I did not want to go back out to the infantry, so I did not pick up any equipment. Again, I told them I did not want to go out to the infantry anymore. I was told I had to. I was telling them I wouldn't, and so it came down to either I do it or face a court-martial. And they told you those words? Yes. You do it or, or you're you, going to be court-martialed? Right. And if you get court-martialed, you go to the brig, and that's not counted as good time. You still have to spend all. And did you make the argument to them, I've given enough blood? Yes. I've sacrificed enough? It didn't mean anything. They right. needed bodies. So they found enough gear for me. They put me on a truck to go out to one of our forward bases where our infantry company was having a couple days stand down. And when we got there, as I was jumping down from the truck, somebody told me our first sergeant wanted to see me. And I thought, oh boy, he heard that I'm fighting coming back out there. Yeah, he heard you got an attitude. Yeah. yeah, so I figured he's probably got some very undesirable thing for me to do. But when I got to him, he said that our company had just received orders to send one guy to a new helicopter unit to be door gunner. And he said, it's not because I like you. It's not because you've been wounded three times, but just get your ass out of here and get back on the truck and go back. And it was, thank you. So it was just being in the right place at the right time. Otherwise, I would have been back in the infantry. One of your most difficult experiences came when you had to find another helicopter that had not reported, and you've got a monsoon situation again. Tell me about that. It was monsoon season, raining like crazy. At noon, we flew back to our base. We broke for lunch, and after lunch, the four of us crew, the two pilots, the crew chief and myself were in our Huey uh, waiting for whatever we were going to do that afternoon. And Stevenson, who was the colonel's radioman, came out and said the colonel understands how bad the weather is with the monsoon. And he asked our senior pilot, our aircraft commander, what he thought about flying anymore that day. And he said, well, we'll do whatever the colonel wants, but we respectfully say we shouldn't fly anymore today in this weather. So Stevenson went in, came back out, said, colonel agrees with your recommendation. So he grounded all the helicopters in our unit. A couple hours later, I was sitting in my hooch, and uh, Nick, the crew chief, came running in, yelling at me to grab the guns. We were going up. Even though it's raining like crazy. Yes. And the colonel has said... You don't fly. Right. you got to go up. Yes. So after we got the guns mounted and I got in my seat, got my flight helmet plugged into the intercom, I finally found out that one of our helicopters uh, was missing out in the mountains. They had lost contact with them, and we were sent out there to look for them. So we headed for the mountains, and the weather was so bad, we almost piled up a couple times. And we were searching and searching, and finally on a ridge line, we saw 
uh, group of Arvins waving at us. So we landed by them. And the two pilots and Nick stayed with the helicopter. And Major Lee and I went with the Arvins down the side of the mountain. And they took us to the remains of our missing Huey. It had impacted into the side of the mountain, which set off the JP-4 jet fuel and incinerated the whole helicopter and three of the crew. And you knew them? Yes. The aircraft commander was George Hayward. I had flown with him a lot. He was my most respected pilot. I'd rather flown with him than anybody else. And he was only 19 years old. He was an aircraft commander. And you're charged with the responsibility of recovering right. whatever remains what you can we gather. had to, I don't know if it was as we were flying back or as we got back, we found out that even though all of our helicopters in our unit had been grounded, this crew was sent out to fly a hot meal out to these Arvin soldiers because they hadn't had a hot meal in a few days. This is in a monsoon. Yes, a helicopter sent up to fly a hot meal out to... Arvin soldiers. Arvin soldiers. That's the Republic of South Vietnam yes. soldiers. And when I was in the infantry, we didn't have a hot meal every day. So I imagine that burns, right? It, that that yes. really makes you mad. Very much so. And uh, when we got back and after I found that out, I, I commented to Major Lee, that's it. I don't want to fly anymore. Major Lee called us in and said he thought about what I had said the night before. He said the three of us had done enough, that we had enough new guys there, and he told the three of us just to go hide for the next four weeks. And you did. And I did. And looking back, he could have not even responded to what I said, or he could have said, Sergeant, you're in the Army. Get your butt back out there and do it. And I would have done it. But he cut you some slack. Yes, he did. Because yes. that's typically what they did if manpower allowed them to do that. Yes. When you're on the plane and you're leaving Vietnam, I imagine you had a moment to think about everything you'd been through. Yes. And are you thinking, how in the world did I come out of this alive? Absolutely. And there was a very big difference on the plane. And these were commercial airliners that flew us over and back. On the, on the way over, the stewardesses were, and at that time, stewardess was the term, right. <laughs> uh, were having pillow fights with guys, and there was all kinds of, uh, on the way back, everybody was extremely somber, everybody just sitting there. When we got to Oakland, it was about 1 o'clock in the morning. There was just enough personnel there to give us a dress uniform, travel pay, and there's the door. I'm curious about your reunion with your folks, and did they tell you when you came home that they had lobbied real hard, knowing that you'd been shot, yes. wounded three times? Yes. Did they tell you all of what had gone on in their efforts to... Yes, they did. They had So they were paperwork. pretty angry about it. Oh, yeah. It. They had saved the paperwork, letters from the congresswoman, you know, with her answers. They kept getting these telegrams, you know. Which read how? Your son has Your been son wounded has in action. Your son has been wounded. Not seriously. No further information will be provided. It actually said that? No Basically, further information will be provided? Yeah. 
So your parents had to be pretty unhappy with this whole situation. Oh, yes. Right. So when I got home, I had a flight from Oakland to Chicago, and I hired a taxi to bring me out. I wasn't going to wait for a bus or anything. I had a taxi bring me out to North Aurora, and I had them drop me off at a gas station that I had worked part-time at once and knew people there. I didn't want the taxi pulling in the driveway. You know, it was a little more of a surprise by you know, a regular vehicle pulling in there, and my mother was dressed to go to work and just totally broke down, you know, seeing me. And then we went to Rosary High School where my sister was a senior and got her, then went to her at Sealmaster Bearing where my father was working and got him. Lots of tears, I bet. Yeah. Good to throw your arms around your mom. Oh, yeah. I'm just, I know how fortunate I am that I made it home. There was times at night I could literally hear the bullets go as they're coming past. The first time I was in the hospital after that horrible night, uh, it was nighttime and there was a nurse's station across from me and it was dark and the nurse came in, turned on the little nightlight over her desk. I was instantly out of bed and under the bed. Gut reaction, whatever, just take cover. There's times now when I hear things that... That startle you oh yeah. and remind you. Yes, at times my wife will say, why are you looking at that person? Well. It's just reaction. You you see movement, and you you you're looking to see what it is. It's just ingrained in you, I guess. Well, you went on an honor flight. Yes. You went on honor flight Chicago in July of this year, and I know you went to those names on the wall of yes. the guys you know. And you'd been there once long ago. Right? Yes. When I had been there before, I had gone there every day or evening. And Sunday afternoon, we were going to return home and made one more trip to the wall. And being Sunday afternoon, there were a lot of people there. And we got down to the apex of the wall and there was a guy with the Marine Corps cap on standing there bawling his eyes out. I went up and embraced him and joined him and and a third guy on a scooter came up and the three of us just standing there holding on to each other. None of us ever said a word but just the three of us bawling our eyes out just feeling the same thing. When you're there and you look at the wall and you see the names of the people you knew, do you say anything to them? Yeah. What do you say? Uh, just that I remember them and miss them. And the guy who I said was my lieutenant when I was radioman, Lieutenant Earl Zaylor from Chicago, he was different. A lot of the officers we didn't like because they were uppity and stuff. He was a real down-to-earth good guy. And the last time I was wounded with that grenade, and he he wasn't, he was kind of, geez, I wish I would have been wounded too. But 
Well, he moved on to be company commander of another company, and he was killed by a booby-trapped artillery round. I just remember he was such a good guy. How many friends did you lose? Uh, Twelve altogether. Five from my infantry company, four from my helicopter, uh, one guy who I was friends with in infantry training, and two of my classmates at West Aurora High School. When you look back on this whole experience in your life, do you get angry? Do you accept it as kind of a fait accompli? I served my country. I did what I, I have, could. I'm I have, lucky. I have mixed feelings about it. Yeah, a lot of it I'm very not happy with. But it also changed me. How so? It made me more respectful of life, of what our military does for our country. It changed me as a person. I used to be very introverted. You're very active, I'm very in, active. in veteran interests. And yes. you were at, you mentioned to me earlier you were at the Welcome Home Parade in 1986 and that changed you. You became yes. you you kept it inside until that point and that was kind of a freeing experience. Yes, then. correct. Yeah, that's when I used the term came out of the closet as yeah. a Vietnam veteran and I've been active with stuff since then. I have given talks at many schools. Uh, there's a teacher in Batavia at Rotolo Middle School that teaches history. And I've been going there five or six years. She has, when they get to studying Vietnam, she has a group of veterans come as a panel. So I've been doing that for a number of years. What would you say to Vietnam veterans who may still be harboring a lot of angst from their experience and they haven't, as you say, come out of the closet to talk about it. What, what well, would you recommend to them? I, I uh, was accepted to a PTSD group at the Aurora Vet Center. So we have a monthly meeting where she helps us with things. And then also we meet once a week, our group. And we've become a very close group where we consider each other brothers. And most of us are combat vets. I think that's helped a lot. I encourage people, especially like with honor flight. I'll, have you gone on honor flight yet? No. Well, you need to. Eh, you know, you've, you earned it. You deserve it. It's a wonderful thing. Or with the PTSD. Uh, back in World War II, it was shell shock. You know, now give it a fancy name. And I don't think anybody can honestly say they don't have some of it because of, like I say, the things that still bother me. You're still carrying a burden, aren't you? Yes. Got a weight on your shoulders. You got shrapnel in your body. Yeah, when I went for uh, uh, Agent Orange screening, at first, I said, well, I wasn't back in the mountains where they, and somebody said, what did your base camp look like? And the light bulb came on. There wasn't a piece of green on our base camp. So while I was in Agent Orange screening, and they're checking everything out, and I went back 10 days later, and the nurse was going through the results of it. Oh, and she said, and here's the shrapnel in your left lung. And I am said, wait a minute. Nobody ever told me about that before. <laughs> in your left lung? Yes. You have shrapnel in your lung? Yes, which I didn't know about. 
So what's your level of disability? When I first got out, I was awarded 20% in September of 69, and I've got 20% for many, many years. The veteran service officer up in Geneva, he was working on getting me a higher level. He said, you deserve more. He was, And he'd send me in for this, that, and whatnot. They would deny this, deny that. But then when I got prostate cancer, that's an automatic 100%. When did you get that? Uh, seven years ago. And it's attributable, whether that's where you got it or not, it's attributable to Agent Orange. And it's an automatic. You don't have to prove anything. It's automatically go up to 100%. And Jim, you paid a hell of a price, didn't you? A hell of a price. Yeah. and But I just know how fortunate I am. I have all my limbs. I've been able to do anything I've wanted to do. I've had the back pain forever, but you just eventually get used to it. And uh, I just think how much worse it could have been for me. I've got three wonderful kids, five grandkids. Many, many years ago, my younger daughter was totally into theater, improv, and all kinds of stuff in Chicago. And one time she did a just a one one person thing and I was there and she was talking about her life and she commented in the thing and there's my father who's a Vietnam vet who's never told me anything about it (laughs) I just you know didn't burden my kids with it but you share it with them now oh yes don't you and have for some time yes my older daughter was my guardian on honor flight when I was notified whatever it was, about two weeks ahead of honor flight that I was going to go. I had finally been scheduled because I had put in for it five years before, but COVID, you know, pushed it back a couple years. And I had uh, my daughter Jenny down to be my guardian. Uh, When they called me, it was like, uh, I know she's going on vacation right about that time. Uh, Let me make sure with her first and I'll call you back. So I called her, you know, that was on the, going to go on the 12th. She said, well, on the 13th, her and her family are flying to Italy. <laughs> I said, well, that's probably not going to work out. She said, we're not leaving till noon, and I wouldn't miss this for anything. <laughs> so we had a very, very good day together. I'm glad. I'm very fortunate. I'm very close with all of my kids. That's good. They're all they're all very good. They've got wonderful spouses. And, uh, I'm very fortunate there. Good thing to celebrate. Yes. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Jim is hobbled somewhat by a variety of ailments, no doubt worsened by his war wounds, but that hasn't diminished his passion for helping other vets. He sees it as a sacred obligation. It's part of our obligation at Honor Flight Chicago to thank and honor our vets whether or not they served in combat. Telling their stories is important, and we invite you to share Jim's. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.